part of growth means um, looking at what does it mean to lead people well? What does the Bible tell us about how a church ought to be leading people well? Um, and that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, this is a bit of a deviation from, we've, it, it, this autumn we've been going through Mark, um, the last uh, uh, chapters of Mark. And so it's a bit of a deviation, but I think a timely deviation uh, given kind of where we are at as a church. Because I think in general, it's, it's important to have good leaders. Uh, or uh, you know that when you've had a good boss or a bad boss. If you've had a boss who's not been really good, you know, it's like completely depressing and demoralizing. Uh, some of you have had that, and we know that. We've been praying about that work situation. It's difficult. Some of you have a good boss, and it's just it's like so encouraging, and, uh, and that's the kind of people that we want to be. Um, as uh, some of you know, I've had many jobs kind of growing up over the years. It's an in-joke of Will Tyndall's family, apparently. Um, at uni, I had a job where I was doing nitrogen tests on grass samples for cows. I had nothing at all to do with my with what I was studying. I was studying like it was, had nothing to do. I was just a lab rat, kind of like do this thing. I was mixing cool chemicals that would burn through my skin and my clothes if I did it wrong. Um, so my, my boss though was this fantastic man named Richard. He was from Haiti. Uh, he was uh, very relaxed. He loved football, like real football, not American football. He loved uh, carnival. Whenever carnival would come. He would just kind of dance always. He was like, hey, man, let's, let's take a break. He was like just super laid back. Well, he knew that I was kind of always an insane kind of workaholic, especially in my uni days. And he would just look at me and be like, hey, you've been working for a while. Why don't you go take a break? And I was like, what? what? Like take my earphones. Like, what did you just say to me? It was weird. Uh, it's because a good boss cares for those who he has authority over. He's not a slave driver. Here's a good bad example. I um, used to work in an Italian cafe. I was a grill cook. Um, and uh, yeah, I could just keep on going. Um, at the time, I was also teaching high school classes, teaching guitar lessons, and I was in seminary like full time. So it was a little busy, busy time for us and our family. Um, but this boss at the cafe uh, thought very highly of his coffee. And rightfully so. I think it was probably the best espresso in Orlando, probably at the time. I mean, it's different now. Um, but if he saw someone who was previously at a Starbucks around the corner that day or that week, he would kick them out of the like, he would kick them out of the cafe. He wouldn't even say why. He'd just go out, get out, and they'd be like, oh, "This is kind of funny." But then they realize he's actually not joking. He's actually really serious and angry. And he kicked the people out. Now you can imagine someone like that is generally not very nice to his employees. But I knew how to deal with him because he was a lot like my dad. <laughs> so uh, I knew how to deal with someone who can be a bad boss sometimes. But life under a bad boss. Not so great. Life under a good boss, really good. Because healthy leadership leads to healthy people. And we want people who are healthy who are leading us. And the same in the church, especially in the church. Healthy leadership is about servant leadership. So the job of people leading the church isn't to do all the things. To make sure, it's to make sure that the whole body is equipped to do what God has called them to do. Because God has given gifts to each one of us, and there are gifts that other people have that I don't have. Um, healthy leaders fan those gifts into flame, those unique gifts. Ephesians 4 puts it this way, that um, my job as a leader in the church is to equip his people for works of service. Like, that's my job as a pastor, as an elder. Now, what does this look like specifically applied to those who lead? Well, when the church grows, like the model of church leadership should grow as well. We, saw, we see that in Acts 6, that the birth of the original church, and lots of people are coming to faith. And originally, uh, the 12 leaders, the 12 uh, apostles, were the people who were leading the church at that point. Um, they found out that their system of leadership wasn't adequate to give people who were depending on the church for food. Uh, because they were basically they were spending all their time like dealing with people who needed to get food and eat every day. 
And so they realize, actually, this isn't the best use of our time. Um, the way that it says in Acts 6 is these leaders realized they needed to give their attention to prayer and to ministry of the word. Um, so they knew feeding people was important, but leading the church, spiritual leadership of the church, the focus had to be on prayer and the word. And so that means they needed to have other leaders kind of involved. And that's how important prayer and the word is for us as a church. Now, in that church, there are at least 12, if not more, leaders, what our Bible calls elders, and we'll talk about that term in a bit. Um, at this stage of Redeemer, you don't have, we don't have 12 people leading. We don't need 12 people leading. There's basically like 12 of us. Um, but uh, the great problem is the numbers of disciples are increasing, just like how they were in Acts 6. And it's always been part of God's plan for leader, to have leaders in community as they lead the community. It's never been part of God's plan for there to be one guy in charge, and he makes all the, calls all the shots. So we're going to look at a situation much further back from Acts, before like the thousands of people come in our doors, as it was going on in Acts. We're going to look at a new church plant in an area that was indifferent or even hostile to the Christian faith, uh, let alone to a gospel culture. This is what Paul's letter to Titus is about. What happened here is Paul was um, planting churches. Paul's kind of mode of operating was he'd go to a place, um, begin like the, an embryonic stage of a church, and then move on to the next place and move on and move on. It was uh, very apostolic in that way. Uh, so what Paul did is, but Paul would leave leaders behind to, do, to finish the work. As he says, if you have your Bible open, and um, definitely do, because we'll be looking at it a lot. Uh, uh, it says, verse 5, the reason I left you, so this is Paul talking to Titus. Titus is just like his protege. The reason why I, Paul, left you in Crete as you might put into order what was left unfinished. There's an element where if there, if there isn't a healthy leadership, then there's a level of unfinishedness in the church. That's why we're called a church plant and not an established church, because we don't have those leaders yet. So the church isn't whole and healthy if there isn't a community of leaders leading the community. And so, I mean, we can't start that way. We're, kind of, we're growing towards that way. So right from the start, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders. Now let's talk about two terms really quickly. Uh, elders and appoint. Now, elder uh, is a word that is interchangeable with lots of other words. It could be pastor. It could be spiritual leader. Um, elder, it, uh, it comes from a Greek word, presbuteros, which we're not going to call each other presbuteri or whatever the thing is. That would be weird. Um, but even the word elder might be kind of weird if you're not from a church background. Like, what does that mean you're just older? Well, it's more than just being someone who's old, even though the Hebrew word that it comes from just basically means gray-haired one. So I'm, I'm slowly getting there. <laughs> um, uh, so the elders just basically means like a spiritual leader, like a pastor. Um, a point means to take someone from one place to another, from point A to point B, that's what it means to a point. So Titus's primary job, like the first thing that Paul says in this letter, is to bring leaders here, potential leaders here, to there. This is what it looks like to appoint elders. And so um, we're going to spend some time today uh, looking at what a healthy leader looks like because we as a church want to be in that appointing process. We want to be appointing elders. Now, sorry, not sorry, this is going to be a little bit longer of a sermon today. I'm not sorry because I didn't edit it down at all. Um, it's not going to be like hours. It'll just be a few hours. Uh, but, um, and, and also to add to the weirdness, we're going to have like a Q&A kind of time in the middle of it or towards the end of it. So uh, that might be really weird, especially um, as Americans. We're like, yeah, we'll talk in front of everybody. Brits are like, hang on. Um, so, uh, but if you have questions, it's a good chance to ask. And also if you have questions uh, on the bottom here, RedeemerMCR.com slash ask. If you go to that site, you can anonymously um, ask questions. I don't even get where the email is from or what the, what it's, who it's from. And I'll answer them in the weekly email that um, Elspeth talked about, that if you're on our list, you can get on here. 
So if you have a question and you feel maybe awkward asking about it in front of everybody, you can go to that site. Um, and it's okay to take your phone out to go to that site. It's not okay to take that phone out and go to Instagram. I know you're doing it. Um, but let's talk first about what a healthy leader looks like. Uh, we're going to look like in the family, because we're following what Paul is teaching us here. Paul's going to teach all of us what a healthy leader looks like. First, with respect to the family. Second, with respect to ver- vices and virtues. And lastly, with respect to the truth. And we're going to also talk about, and this is why it's a little bit longer, we're going to talk just briefly about how we as a church are going to respond to this teaching, how we're going to be obedient and actually working this out, what that process of appointing will look like for Redeemer. So let's first, though, let's start with uh, family. What does healthy leadership look like in family? Well, uh, there's a, this is basically like a bunch of verses of lists. So it says in verse 6, an elder, a leader, a pastor must be first is blameless. Now, blameless might be like, whoa, isn't like Jesus the only blameless one? How does that work? Well, blameless does not mean perfect. It doesn't mean without problems. It doesn't mean uh, that you are, uh, you, you never mess up or anything like that. But it does mean someone who's above accusation. Uh, in other translations, in other places, it'll say someone who's above reproach. Basically, that means that uh, no one can like legitimately say, well, that guy is just really lazy, never does anything, or whatever the thing might be. It also says an elder must be faithful to his wife. Uh, uh, one way that people put this is like a one-woman man. Um, there must be sexual integrity for this person because sex is a powerful thing. And adverts capitalize on this. Adverts know about this. Everyone knows that there's a reason why sex sells. But good leaders are those who aren't controlled by the power of sex. Now here there's an assumption of marriage, uh, and this is like maybe more common than not, but it's not a requirement of marriage anymore than it's a requirement for elders to have children. We'll talk about that uh, later on. The question is for this leader, generally, is there sexual integrity? Uh, is there purity? If, if they have a partner, if they have a spouse, are they um, uh, trustworthy? Is there fidelity? Now this, out, this rules out people with multiple wives or multiple partners. It doesn't necessarily rule out someone who's been divorced, depending on the situation. It doesn't rule out someone who isn't married. But it does rule out someone who has uh, overwhelming addictions to pornography or to living out sexual fantasies, or, or living in sexual fantasies. It rules out someone who has like strange interactions with women. Some of you just like, women just kind of feel creepy around. Now you've heard someone, also you've heard someone say of a person, oh, they're married to their job. Maybe I think that's the version of polygamy in our day. Like our jobs are so important, our careers are so important, because we feel like they fulfill our passions in all these ways, and, and maybe they do. But someone who's married to a person, and also married to their job, that's just an immature leader. And that's what maybe polygamy is like. So a one-woman man, someone who puts their wife above everything else, who serves their wife well. Uh, Paul also says, uh, a man whose children believe and are, and are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. So it might seem like a steep requirement here. Like Paul is uh, telling Titus that the elder's children must be believing. Uh, and what Paul is saying, though, I think here, is that for the household that the elder is leading, they must all be on the same page especially in a place like Crete. We'll talk about how Crete was described in a minute. Um, Basically, the house, um, it should not be a divided house. This comes up again in 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5. It's just a few page turns back, but I'll put it on the screen as well. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, uh, talking about an elder, a leader, says, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect, which is different than just demanding kids like obey you. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So households were supposed, in, uh, in the Christian church, were supposed to live in stark contrast to the culture of Crete. 
this was a requirement for the church to survive and thrive in what was a hard environment. Like, they can't afford to lower the bar of leadership. Generally, if we find ourselves in a hard environment, we're like, ah, we'll just kind of maybe if we lower the bar a little bit, we can get more leaders in. But I think the more difficult environment we live in, the higher bar of leadership we should require because it's just difficult to live. The requirement here that uh, Paul is talking about is that children ought to exhibit qualities of the faith that their father clings to. That looks like children who aren't accused of being wild or disobedient. So going back to the situation at Crete, it makes uh, sense for Paul to contrast the church's leader as one who is wild. Here's how someone at the time, not a biblical writer though, uh, described Crete. It said, Crete has no need for wild beasts. Like Crete didn't have a whole lot of wildlife apparently. Um, Has no need for wild beasts for its own inhabitants were sufficient. Bunch of wild beasts there in Crete. So if one's to manage the church, how have they managed their family? Is their family reflecting more of the culture that they're in or is reflecting more of what it means to follow Jesus? How are they loving their wives and children well? Are the children responding to this man's leadership positively? And if not, how should we expect them to lead in the church? Having children who aren't rebelling at every instance but are responding positively in obedience, it says a lot about how a father loves his kids. It doesn't mean that the kid is going to be perfect in every way. It doesn't mean that the kid will turn out to be a believer when they're adults in every possible way. But that's the kind of leader that we want in any church or organization, is someone who loves their kids well. There's a loving heart behind it, one that deeply loves the people that depends on them more than they love themselves. So it's amazing that loving a child more than loving their obedience can actually produce obedience, which is kind of crazy. Normally, I think, especially when Colin's, you know, going crazy, I'm like, just obey, do the thing I tell you to do. Uh, and sometimes just, that's just how it has to be. Um, but sometimes uh, loving a child, it, it, you know, it may not be done quite as timely as just kind of behavior management. Um, and surely it doesn't happen in every instance when we interact with Colin. But over time, the child, hopefully, Colin or whoever else, you know, believes that you care for that child. It believes that you, um, and that you respond to them well. Another thing that, um, just on this family thing, because I think there can be a lot of questions about this. Another thing worth mentioning is that Paul's talking about children. He's not talking about adults. This is applying to elders who have children under their care. And actually, it's applying to, child, to elders who have children under their care who are old enough to make these kind of decisions. Um, so if these children grow up and decide to kind of chuck the faith or say they were never really believers, though obviously that's intensely sad, that by itself does not disqualify someone for being an elder. It's about households being on the same page and living lives in conformity with the gospel. Uh, in past churches where I've served, I've known elders who had children who were pretty wild. I mean, for one in particular, I remember this was like when I was an, an, an intern at the first church I worked at. Um, this one elder's home life was a wreck. Like his children were being picked up by police. People weren't invited to go over his house often because the kids were insane. Uh, and he tempora- temporarily stepped down as an elder from leading because of it. He was an apt leader in lots of ways. He was really good at getting decisions kind of made and getting stuff done. But he realized that leading his family was more important than leading his church and realized his family required much more energy and time. Plus, he realized he didn't really match up with the biblical qualifications to lead in that moment at that time. So you may or may not have a family, but I think we can tease out a principle here for all of us, regardless of if you want to lead in the church or not. I think really the principle here is to start with the smallest area of responsibility first. Start small first. Just because it's small doesn't mean it's not important. If you have big plans, that's great, but start small first. What's the smallest way that you can, you can positively influence someone's life? The first area Paul goes for, that for the most important leaders in the church, is the family. And, and a family is like also the metaphor that's used the most often for a church, is what does a family look like? 
So being an elder is less of a position than it is like just an identity and a reality of things that you do. Like me being a father, it's not like, oh yes, now I'm a father. It's kind of like, no, it's just like being a father is, is, is more of what it feels like. So husbands, are you loving your wives well? Do you care for them? Does she quickly recognize you as a, quick, as a servant? What would she say? Maybe, maybe you could ask her. <laughs> what are some things you know, I could do to love you better? So those of you who are leading well in smaller contexts, it could be that maybe it's time to think of growing your responsibility. Now, not everyone's in this situation, but some might be. Uh, how can we serve more people? How can we serve, or how can we serve the same people but better and in, in more ways? Now, this is a redeemer thing, but it's not merely a redeemer thing. This is true for your job. This is true for your neighbors. It's true for your friends. What about going after that new promotion with more responsibility or in your friends group with neighbors? How can you take the lead in serving them more? How can you take a larger role in your missional community? So how someone leads in their family is an overflow of what's going on inside. And that's why Paul talks about it so much. And that's also um, where Paul takes us next is, is the heart. For potential leaders in the church, people who manage the goings-on at the church, they must look after their hearts well. And so Paul goes through this list of vices and virtues. It's kind of like a very common way of writing then of uh, this is what's honorable, this is what's dishonorable. It's a very um, Roman thing that they probably got from the Greeks because that's what Romans did is they stole stuff from Greeks. Um, but uh, so we have another list of things, another like more list of things. The first thing we find again um, is blameless again. Since an overseer managed God's household, this is verse seven, he must be blameless. Like, ah, oh, blameless again. Oh my gosh, so much blameless going on. Remember, it's not perfect, but it's, it's uh, respected. It's, it's honored. It's not someone who searches after honor, but someone who's honored because they serve people well. Also, someone who's not overbearing. Someone who leaves space in relationships and cares about hearing from others in conversation. This is not arrogant. This is not pushing their agenda on other people. This is going against the sin of pride. What all sorts of leaders like, struggle with, like how can I get my thing done in the way that I want it to be done? That's not a good leader. That's like a horrible boss. What does it mean to not love yourself more than others? And what does it mean to not use others for your own ends, even if your own ends might be really good? That's all, um, the elder also uh, must not be quick-tempered. Now, this is being self-controlled in the realm of anger. Anger itself doesn't have to be a bad thing, um, but anger out of control or not in check or not used in the way the Bible tells us to is not acceptable for a leader, and it drives people away. Also, someone who's not given to drunkenness. It's good to not have a, an elder in the church who doesn't get drunk often. Seems pretty obvious, right? Someone who's not driven by alcohol. Right? You can't be driven by alcohol and also be driven by the gospel. Those two just don't match up. And maybe alcohol isn't your thing, but there's all sorts of things that we use to numb ourselves from the outside world, whether things that are too difficult for us, whether things that um, uh, might be too painful for us or too hurtful, or maybe we feel like we're not enough. We use all sorts of things. Netflix, it's the best kind of thing to, be, to use to numb yourself against the outside world. I'm all about Netflix. I'm not anti-Netflix. Bring it on. Let's watch Netflix. Um, but are you, if, if we're always going to that, after like a hard day, like the only thing you want is just like to, you know, gloss over and sit in front of the television for four hours or whatever, like that's not the best way to lead. That's not the best way to deal with the hurt that might be going on inside. Also, someone who's not violent, all right? We don't want anybody getting drunk. We also don't want anybody punching anybody, all right? Uh, this is pretty obvious. <laughs> He'd be a great elder. His problem is he gets in fights all the time. Other than that, um, someone who's not a bully, Right? Someone, not violent covers a much larger thing than just someone who's physically violent. Uh, someone who, uh, uh, who is violent 
or is a bully, that's a lover of power. And they get frustrated when someone doesn't respond to their power, and so they overbear, they're violent. John Stott says, says this, a gift for leadership usually includes a forceful disposition, which is how the world works. But elders who have learned their leadership style from Jesus will never ride roughshod over other people's sensitivities. They will lead by example, not by force. And surely we've seen this as we've looked through Mark. The amount of times where we should have just been like, Jesus, why did you put up with these disciples? And they realize like, oh yeah, we're just as dumb as they are. Like Jesus is, is so gentle with us and leads us gently over time. Good leaders are servant leaders, not violent leaders. Also, uh, good leaders do not pursue dishonest gain. So money, like power, like sex, and our culture is a particularly strong temptation. Now, I think it's hilarious for someone who's motivated by greed to aspire to like lead in the church, because there is not very much money in leading in the church. I just want to let you know, if you want to make a lot of money, do not lead the church. Although I knew people in seminary that the reason why they took the particular denomination they did was because of salary package and the retirement benefits. Like, that's horrible. That's not how we want people leading the church. Oh, because I get paid this amount and, and I'll get provided this and when I'm old and you know, I'll get provided this. That's a horrible reason to lead the church. Now, just because there's not a lot of money to be had doesn't mean the love of money isn't a temptation. So those are the vices. Those are all the bad things. Let's look at some of the virtues that Paul brings up. So he's gone through lots of vices here. What positively does it look like? Well, the first one is hospitable. Hospitality is one of the major features that stood out in the early church. And I think it's one of the major features that will stand out and has stood out for Redeemer because we're kind of living in a really kind of early church situation here in Charlton. I found that hospitality is often kind of understood too in a Christian-y, churchy kind of way. We think of having anybody over our house means hospitality. I guess that's kind of right. But the, what hospitality actually means is a love of someone who's different than you, a love of, of the other. So having other Christians over for your house, for dinner, for drinks, that's great. Like, let's do that. But let's call, that's more like what fellowship is. Hospitality is having people who you who don't agree with everything you believe in. So they might be gay. They might be atheists. They might define themselves as a woman, though they were born as a man. All those kind of things. Those are people who believe very different things in us. How do we love them? We're hospitable. We invite them over to our house. The focus on hospitality is not loving our friends, but it's loving strangers. So uh, you might think we're a hospitable church or a hospitable uh, missional community, but if we aren't being kind to strangers and people who don't identify as Christians, we're actually not practicing hospitality. It can be an area where we can grow. So how are we practicing hospitality in our lives? You know, maybe you can't have them over for dinner, and, and that, that's fine. That's just one way. That's the easiest way for us. Why don't you come to us, and we'll give you food. Um, there are lots of other ways to bless others who aren't believers yet. Are we searching after that? Are we praying to God for those opportunities, and are we listening for the Spirit to give us that kind of leading? A good leader goes out of his way for others, even if they don't believe the same thing. A good leader also loves what is good, uh, not just what's good for them, they're not just loving what's convenient. Uh, loving, uh, loving what is good is often at our own expense. In fact, the definition of righteous is someone who does something good for someone else at our own expense. That's what we want. That's the kind of servant leader we're looking for. Good leaders are self-controlled. They're thoughtful. They're wise. They don't have outside distractions controlling their thoughts and actions. Good leaders are upright as being seen, and that means uh, being seen as just and fair by other people. You can't be upright in your own little vacuum. You can't be upright in your own eyes. That's just called arrogant. If other people see you as upright, that's what it looks like. Uh, good leaders also have to be holy. Now, what does that mean? Um, holy means set apart. Okay, you might have heard before, like, yeah, but what does that mean? Set apart, like, for what? What is that all about? Well, set apart from all that's not of God. 
To be holy means to live a life in response to how God calls us to live. How we use our time is different because we're set apart for God. How we use our money is different because we're set apart for God. That means you don't join in the gossip of a coworker because we're holy. That's who God says we are. That means we don't get drunk along with our friends. It means the only person we sleep with is our spouse. Holiness is not an excuse to look down on someone. In the Old Testament, holiness was something that was often described as something attractive that other people would see who don't follow this God. Other people would see the way we live and be attracted to it. There's there's an attractive element to it. It's an outworking of our love for God, and that's always attractive to people. It's also a good leader is disciplined. A concept of self-discipline comes here last to kind of round out this list. Uh, There's a mastery of self that discipline kind of speaks to, and there's a reason why it's last, um, because you can look basically all of these under the umbrella for which these fall under. Like a good leader is a servant who's disciplined. And I think umbrella is a good metaphor to think of this, because if you think of an umbrella, if any part of the umbrella goes bad, uh, it's kind of useless. Like if you have a 60% good umbrella, 40% means you're still like 100% wet. It's just like, why would you take that out? You would just throw that thing away. It's no good. These virtues and vices present a full picture. It's not just like, oh, I'm really good at this, this, and this. I'm not too good with the not violent thing. That's cool, because I'll do, I'll do better at hospitality. It'll even out. Like, it's supposed to be a, a full-orbed picture of what a leader looks like. Now, there's a few on this list that we like. There's a few that we really don't like, and others we maybe try and forget about was even, were even on this list. And it'd be easy to focus on one thing. Uh, I used to work as a personal trainer at a gym. This is like a list of jobs. I didn't realize... <laughs> Um, that was actually what I got my degree in. Uh, and in my gym days, back when that was a thing for me, when I used to do that, uh, it was nice. Um, you'd always run across these people. They would call themselves gym rats. Obviously, they live at the gym. They're there when you open. They're there when you close. You're like, what in the world? How are they eating? Like, are they getting mail here? What in the world's going on? Um, well, some of these gym rats really liked working out some parts of their body and not so much other parts. It'd be, it would not be uncommon to see someone with like massive arms and like massive shoulders with his little like twig toothpick legs walking around. If like the wind blew wrong, they'd fall over because they're just so massively built. Uh, but I think the gym is a good metaphor for this. So like we want to work out the entire body and all of this is like daily exercise. It's not like, well, either you have it or you don't. This is all a work in progress. It takes discipline to work out the virtues and disciplines to uh, uh, avoid the vices. You don't come out of the womb with these in place. Good leaders aren't born. They're made over time and in community. Now, I know this is about leaders, and this is obviously like the main sermon thrust is about. And maybe you don't think you're a leader, but all of us, regardless of our leadership status, this is like a list of how all of us should strive to live, regardless of where we are with respect to leadership. And actually, I bet... A lot of us are probably leading people more than what we would generally think of. So where on this list is God calling you to grow next? Maybe there's something you avoid. Maybe there's something you really don't like. Maybe there's something that completely offends you. The best way to know, actually, of where you are, how you're doing on this list, is to ask somebody else. Someone who you trust, who's not going to like completely slash you down or something. Someone whose feedback would be helpful. It could be your partner. It could be someone in the missional community or a friend. Now, uh, you might notice here that the way Paul is talking and therefore like the way I've been talking, uh, Paul has only been addressing men when it comes to an elder. Uh, Now, not here, uh, but in other places, Paul lays out why the role of elder is to be limited to men and roots it in 
in the beginning of creation. Now, that doesn't mean women can't be leaders in all sorts of other places in Redeemer, or let alone like the workplace or community, things like that. But elders uh, are particular, what Paul's talking about here, are particular to the church, not to other vocations. So this isn't about how um, women can't be CEOs or things like that. Of course, women can do that. Um, now, Paul here isn't making an argument for elders to be men, and we really do not have the time to get into that, but it's a, a really good question to ask. Um, and so you could use that website to ask that question. But uh, if the Bible does teach that the elder role is limited to men, and this is something that's new for you, um, consider the type of leader being talked about here. That really nobody could argue with the description. That these are all, this is how we want our leaders to be, are described this way. Uh, and how countercultural really all of these requirements are. Someone who leads their family like in this way, that, that's kind of revolutionary. Someone who exhibits these kind of personal traits, like I want to be around people like this. I want to be led by people like this. So the question of like, what does it mean in the local church and how Paul and the Bible talks about uh, men and women, that's a great question to ask and something we can talk about. Uh, we just can't do it now because the sermon's already too long to begin with. Um, unless you want to be here for, I mean, I'm all about it. I'm a nerd. Um, but let's move on for now. And we'll have a time for Q&A also. Uh, so we've talked about family. We've talked about the heart. But um, we have not hit these last verses here. And I think this is the most important and fundamental part of what it means to be a leader. Uh, it's, it's the one that all the other traits are born out of, and it's truth. And Paul writes this in verse 9. He says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So the trustworthy message is the truth, a message that one can trust in, something that is true, that can hold weight, that stands up to arguments, that doesn't just kind of like flap around. The trustworthy message, this truth is the gospel. The trustworthy message is the story where God in his kindness saw us in our scattered state. Our hearts and our passions are all over the place. We have horrible leaders. He saw how lost we were in all this. Out of his kindness, he saved us through the renewal of his spirit. So God washed us clean through the work of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And so holding firmly to the trustworthy message is holding firmly onto the gospel. And this is the story of what Jesus has done for us. Now, this is the truth for good leaders, elders, and Christians, what they hold on, what they hold firmly to. So hold firmly, that's a personal thing. It's a deep thing. Um, it's not like, you ever got, if you went in for a handshake for someone, it's a bit of like the wet fish thing. It's kind of like, I don't know what's going on there. It's like kind of flappy, um, feels kind of weird. This is like super intimate interdigitating, kind of like something you would not do with a stranger or really probably anyone else. Um, it, it's, it's just like a firm hold or even like, you know, I feel like real men or maybe like Lord of the Rings where they like shake their hands like that, you know, where they're like grasping on like, oh, if you were to fall off a cliff, I'd still be shaking your hand. Uh, that's the kind of like firm hold that I think Paul's talking about here. It's not kind of like a loose association that, oh yeah, I guess it's kind of cool. This is like, yeah, I'm holding on to this. Having a firm hold on the truth puts the gospel in top priority over everything. That doesn't necessarily mean you stop what you're doing in your life because we're probably doing lots of very good things. Uh, but having good things in the wrong place become bad things. It just means all the good things are put in the right order. The gospel and top priority in our lives changes the orientation we have towards everything else. And this is central. Everything else flows from it. Holding firmly to the truth frees our scattered hearts and allows us to be devoted. And there are two products of this. 
that Paul talks about here. It says, we, he, so in verse nine, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message of the gospel as it's been taught, that Paul's literally taught these people, so that, and there's two things here, he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So it stirs others to do the same. If you have a firm hold on the gospel, that automatically stirs others to do the same. That's how important, if, 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 the, if you have that firm hold on the gospel, it can't help but do that. It stirs others to, to be involved in the gospel. It also corrects and convinces those who don't have a firm hold on the truth. So if, an, if the elder holds firmly, uh, others are stirred to do the same. That means this incredibly deep-rooted thing in our hearts is meant to flow outward. And only if a leader is holding firmly can we expect others to grow in that truth. And a leader who's not holding firmly is just gonna give it up when something more strong comes around. So godly leaders help cultivate more leaders. It's kind of like their point. They are people who are encouraging to be around. And so people actually wanna be around them. And in 2 Timothy, Paul uh, teaches Timothy what it means to be a leader in the church. And one of the things he says is, entrust to reliable people this truth, this gospel, who will also be qualified to teach others. It's like part of being a leader means making other leaders. Healthy leaders love seeing others get a firmer hold on the truth. And a healthy leader in the church is actively involved in making other leaders and calling them out, encouraging others to use their gifts. If they're not doing that, they're just not leading. Also, let's talk about uh, refuting, because refuting sounds uh, kind of like a courtroom situation. Oh, refute your argument. Um, in some ways, that's true. But really, uh, what refuting is getting to is correcting, but in a winsome way that causes someone to change, that convinces someone to change. It's one thing to point out where someone's wrong. That's really easy. You can just say, you're wrong, next. Like, get a little buzzer sound. That's super easy to do. Nobody wants to have a friend like that. That's like... Gordon Ramsay or Paul Hollywood or whatever kind of food celebrity is mean to people kind of thing. Always pointing out how wrong you are, how rubbish you are. You might have uh, people in your life like that. That's not a good leader, right? That, that's not gonna make you wanna change. You wanna have a leader who when you're wrong will correct you in, in their own humility and in a way that will make you actually want to be better, to want to grow in the gospel. And for people who look up to you, like that's who you wanna be for them because you love them. So now here's the thing we actually are leading each other all the time. We're actually always making disciples of, of something or someone all the time. The question is of what and how. When we get together and like hang out, uh, do we engage on deeper levels as we should? Do we talk about the Bible verses that we read that morning? Do we stop and pray even when we talk about it? I mean, this is what it looks like to encourage each other in sound doctrines. This isn't just limited to like the, you know, the holy leaders of the church. Uh, this is not something also just reserved for interacting with Christians either. The truth is the truth, and we need to be able to encourage everyone in what that looks like. Now, I'm not saying we should be like weirdos who speak Christianese, never interested in having a laugh, and always throwing out Bible verses like holy hand grenades. Um, but as we hang out and enjoy each other's company, let's encourage each other in sound doctrine in very non-weird, normal ways which means you have to actually know it for yourself. So what does it look like to appoint leaders at Redeemer? So this is what we've just read, um, what the Bible says, and this is just like one section of it, because uh, the Bible says more about other leaders. Um, what the Bible says about healthy leaders, how are we gonna respond as a church? How are we gonna be obedient to what Paul's teaching Titus here? Because we're very much in the same situation, an unfinished church in a very kind of hostile and difficult kind of environment here in Charlton. What does that appointing process look like, taking someone from point A to point B, from maybe not ready to be an elder to ready to be an elder? Well, first, we're always wanting people to grow in their faith. 
And uh, because I always do too much, we probably do too much in training as we should for a church our size. But I feel like we have to be about training. So if, if you're ever interested in growing in your faith, especially as it comes to getting um, specific training for where you are in your life, uh, just talk to me um, after the service, whether that's in like small groups, whether that's like more formal training, like we have all sorts of things for that. For elders, though, we do have a formal pathway. It's what we call the servant leadership track. Um, currently, we have two men who are a part of this. Mike Lehan and Tim Martin. Mike can't be with us today because he's, a, he's um, uh, away this weekend. And this is the process that they're in. I'm just gonna, I feel it's really important for us as a church to be transparent about what, it, what it's like because uh, it's supposed to be encouraging for you of people who do get affirmed to be an elder of like, oh, they went through that process. That sounds pretty good. Um, also, it should be encouraging for Tim and Mike if they should are appointed as elders to be like, oh, I went through that process. That means you know there's some confidence that should come there. And if you want to join in this process and you haven't yet and maybe didn't know like this was even a thing, which kind of really wasn't until today. Um, please, like, talk to me because, as the Bible says, it's a good ambition to be to want to serve God's people in this office, and I would love to talk to you about it. Generally, here's kind of some main areas we're thinking about growth uh, in leaders for the church: so, character, competence, and uh, culture. A character fit, a competence fit, and a cultural fit. Uh, here's how we're working these things out. And as we kind of see how Paul lays out all these, uh, all these lists here. Well, first, we meet together, walking through parts of the Bible together, connected to church life. Very basic. Read the Bible. How does it, how does it work out? Um, also, these men, as well as others, are part of the theology track that we put on at Redeemer through Crosslands, which is like two, three hours a week, maybe more, depending on how quickly or not quickly you might be. Everyone's laughing like, yeah, it's more than that. Um, and this is for nine months. It's like proper kind of theological training. And we, the reason why we're, we're going so hard on that is because of the, uh, the competence fit. If, if elders are going to be able to hang on to sound doctrine and be able to refute those who oppose it, they need to know it really well for themselves, which means they need to, have, uh, they need to be skilled up in that area. But most of what Paul talks about is character. It's like teaching and, and holding on to the doctrine is obviously an important part but the, the vast majority of what it means to be an elder is a mature character. So how do we assess that? How do we, you can't go to a course on character and then you just do it. It doesn't work that way. Well, we're trying to work, work with this. Um, a couple things we're doing. There's going to be an elder feedback survey that Tim and Mike will send to people who know them well, like three to five people, um, with in-depth questions about their lives. Very kind of, um, uh, uh, kind of, hopefully very good questions about their lives. We're not looking for perfect people. We're looking for people who exhibit healthy leadership. We're looking for people who you all would want to call pastor, because that's exactly what they'll be. Elder, pastor, it's a synonymous word. So after um, these uh, feedback surveys are out to people who hopefully will speak truthfully about how they uh, experience them in their lives, um, me and Christina will sit down with each elder and their wife, if, um, because they're married, uh, about where they are, uh, in their character, where they'd like to be, and map out and pray for how to get from point A to point B in their lives over the next year, year and a half. Um, if anyone has any concerns about either of these men becoming elders, it's your duty to speak to me or to Christina about it. Um, this is your responsibility in parting, being part of Redeemer. Like, I don't get to choose elders. It's not how it works. Like, we choose elders together. Obviously, I'm going to be more involved in the process because I'm an, the existing elder, but uh, you have a responsibility in, as well. Well, in May, 
that theology track will be finished, and each candidate will be interviewed by our panel of reference. You may not know this, but Redeemer has a panel of reference. These are uh, much more wise and older men in the faith that have pastored for a long time, just to rattle their names off because they're basically rock stars to me. Mike Tyndall, who's the pastor at Grace Church Manchester. John Tyndall, who's Mike's father and has been the longtime pastor at Chessington Evangelical in London. Steve James, the former vicar at Holy Trinity Platt. Gavin White is a former pastor from King's Church. And James Walden, who's a pastor in America. Um, all these men have been working with this process with me to make sure it's, it's something that is um, kind of well done. And at the end of this, after they get kind of interviewed by them, me, as well as those men I just mentioned, will uh, write up a, a brief kind of one kind of A4 sheet of an outcome of, of what it's like. And, and we're going to give them, a, just like as it is for Acts 29 assessment, we're going to give them a scale of one to four of where we feel like they are and, and or where they can grow. So a one is that they'd be recommended for eldership right now, like they're good, they're set. A two, it'd be recommended to be an elder within six to 12 months time after fulfilling kind of certain conditions or seeing some things play out more. Three would be recommended, but not now, with maybe re-looking in one to two years time. And a four would just be not recommended at this time. Uh, after this, for those who are recommended, whether they're fulfilling conditions or not, they'll be put in front of Redeemer and the congregation to be voted in. So members of Redeemer will be able to vote. Now, if you're not a member of Redeemer, um, it's not like we don't want to hear from you. We want to hear from you, of course, but more responsibility comes with more commitment. So if you're a member of Redeemer, uh, you get to vote. And if you want to find out how that works, uh, just talk to me. Now, this is not going to be a quick process. It's going to be long. I mean, it sounds laborious, and it really should be. Uh, we don't want to like crush them with all sorts of observations and classes and all sorts of things like that. Um, but we do want to take our time. And Paul says elsewhere, do not lay hands hastily. Do not like give authority quickly or, or short-sighted. For an elder, the leadership bar, bar should be high because this is for you as the church to be confident in who your leaders are. This is also for our candidates, should they be ordained as elders, to be confident in the calling that God has given them. And you get to have a say in the calling that God's given them because calling happens in community. So if you want to get in on this or any other learning track, by the way, um, talk to me. Maybe you heard that process and you're like, I don't want any part of that. And now Tim's like, oh. Um, no, Tim knew what I was getting into. Um, so <laughs> I did the want to make it clear what this process is like. Because sometimes these things, they don't intend to be kind of seen as being done behind closed doors uh, just because things need to happen. But uh, I think it's really important for all of us to know that we're in this together and this is very transparent. Um, also, I want to make sure that you all feel the burden in, of of this together. It's not just me. Like We all feel the burden of uh, shaping what our what Redeemer is like, uh, what our elders are like. So with that said, uh, I have said a lot of words, um, and uh, the sermon isn't even done yet. But I did want to leave, uh, if you are OK with speaking in an open environment, uh, any questions you might have, just kind of want to open the floor. If you're like, that sounds horrible, or what is that about, or I have a question about this, uh, is it time to say in public? Uh, or you can always just talk to me one-to-one -one if you feel like it might be sensitive, or you can always go to the website if you're really freaked out about whatever question you have. Um, but yeah, any questions? Yes, go American. Uh, I know, I'm not only asking you this, we've talked about this, but I want to make sure that it's something that other people in the church know about. What is, um, so to make sure that our church is not male voices only, um, even though we believe in male servant leadership in the role of pastor and elder. How do we, if there's, if we have a team of elders, how do we make sure that women's voices are also being heard yeah. um, in that? And I know, we, I'm, I'm, I know the answer because I've talked to them about this a lot. It's a setup. So it's a setup. 
But yeah, if he didn't tell anyone, I just thought it would be good to. It's good. I really appreciate it, and I think it could be good for our church to know kind of what the plan would be. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. I think if anything, um, people who come from this kind of interpretation of the Bible uh, don't often give women the voices that they ought to, especially in like leadership levels. So, um, so how can we kind of uh, be faithful to the scriptures? Because being faithful to scriptures means that women are involved. Um, so, I, uh, as far as often, elder meetings are generally in you know from some churches might be just the leaders, but I think it should be the men and their wives involved in meetings. I mean, if you think less of a boardroom model and you think more of a family model. Like, uh, if you're married or if you have you know, a long-term partner, you don't make decisions and be like, well, sorry, I'm the man, so you gotta get on board. Um, you don't do that when you move into a new country. <laughs> um, you don't do that when you even like, like dumb little decisions. You work it out together, and it's more of a relational thing. And that's what we really wanna strive to emulate. So that means we want women in on those conversations. We want women speaking in those decisions. We want m- women making decisions for all sorts of other things. Uh, I mean, we have mostly women probably in our church, mostly women probably leading ministries to begin with. Um, so definitely meet, like uh, meetings where decisions are made, it's really important to have women there. Um, and if women can't get there because of like kids and things like that, I think it's important for then for us to figure out, well, how can we go beyond that and make sure we get their input? Um, uh, what are other things, I think? Um, probably when it comes to... Uh, uh, well, I already talked about leading ministries, uh, making sure that we have women involved in leading ministries. I think for leading missional communities, um, I don't know. I don't think I would be comfortable just having a man or just men lead a missional community. Same thing with just women. Well, I think having a mix is God's intention, being that the image of God is, is uh, represented in man and woman together. Um, this also means that, um, well, I don't know. I'll stop there. Should I say anything more? You know more about this probably than I do. I, just, I think that's important. That idea of having um, the the wives involved sometimes, and that's not just because we want to know what's going on. It's because um, we have different skill sets in some ways. Some of us are good at identifying people when they're maybe not being honest as other people are, or we can see into diff- just different skill sets and things. So having all those different opinions. A woman sometimes is going to look at something different than a man would. Oh yeah. Um, and so having those voices heard, so that the women in our church are not feeling because I've been we've been in situations where the women in the church in our past have felt unheard and unloved and untaken care of, and making yeah. sure that we're not a church that's like that. Yeah, I mean, like, I need Christina speaking into decisions with the church. Like, she has a like a, a more of a prophetic gift than I do, and I need her to be like, oh, what's your thoughts on this? For, like this, or what's your thought about this? Like, her gut feeling um, is is really helpful for me. So, like, it's, it's kind of already happening. I think. Oh, I think uh, maybe a couple other things. Um, I think training often is just reserved for men in leadership. I think it should be for men and their wives, especially like pastoral counseling. Like, elders' wives do so much when it comes to pastoral counseling, and they don't often get you know the credit for it. Uh, I think also for retreats, generally they're organized around how can men get together for a retreat. Some of that is just like how you know, practically how it works out. It's not they're not like saying how can we have women not involved. It's just kind of like it just might not be on the radar as much. But I think we should strive as much as possible to make sure if we have elder retreats to have uh, women there as well. Um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. So does that mean like practically uh, the wives will be at like all the elder meetings? Ideally, yeah. 
I mean, there'd be certain situations if something was super sensitive or something like that. They're depending. Yeah, there, I mean, yeah, there might be some where if someone comes with a hard pastoral situation, like in the past um, at other churches, you know, people talk about being you know, very sensitive things like abuse and things like that, and they don't want like the whole church to know, and by that whole church, they mean like more than just me. Um, some of that sometimes needs to be shared with other people just to like, for um, that person's care, but also for the people who are counseling the care. Obviously, we want to be sensitive to those things, but I think as much as possible, ideally, yeah. And uh, and it might even be like, say we ha- it was like the only other elder candidates were uh, single men, then the question would be like, okay, well then how else can we have women in the room? Like we should probably have other women leaders in the room anyway. Um, so just because it's an elder meeting doesn't mean that it should always be behind closed doors. Um, uh, I think that what servant leadership means, the way that what it means for Jesus um, to uh, submit to the Father and therefore the church submitting to Jesus means that uh, the brunt of the responsibility ends up being on the men. And that often means, generally what responsibility means, when things go wrong, it's your fault. When things go right, it's actually someone else's fault. Um, and hopefully we would be able to work that out in the way that we see the Bible. But yeah. I don't know if this is a slight tangent. I was just wondering, so if an elder's going to be, an elder, it's only a man that can sort of preach with authority at the front of the church. I'm just wondering, like, where the line is if a woman's at the front. Like, Elsa lived today, if she started, like, she, she mentioned a few verses and talked about a couple of things. When, where's the line between sharing and the word and then it becomes preaching with authority? Like, if a woman accidentally crossed the line, where is it? Yeah, that's a yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and that is uh, 1 Timothy 2 or 3, I believe, where, um, yeah, Paul's talking about what does teaching and authority look like in the local church. Um, so I think uh, what happens here is, has a different level of, if you think of an authority like, like a triangle, like the very top part would be most authoritative, and that's like reserved for the smallest amount. The very bottom is like least authoritative. Um, and so I think preaching on a Sunday morning comes with more authority than leading a missional community, than um, leading kids. And they, I mean, it doesn't mean like less importance. I think our jacked up view of authority means like only things that are authoritative are important, but that's not true. Um, that's not how Jesus worked his life. So, um, but uh, the, what happens on, the way I think the Bible talks about is what happens on Sunday, there's, with, with, a, with a preach, is that there's more authority that comes from that than from leading other parts of the service or leading music, which is why it's like, oh, if there's less authority with that, then, then how can we get people who are not me in those positions, like Elspeth um, or whoever else kind of leading music. So, uh, yeah, I think that, um, there's a level of where teaching with authority is what I see in scriptures, really, I don't know how else you'd get around how the scripture teaches, is reserved for male servant leadership, the way it puts. Um, but I feel like that level of authority is like very small compared to the rest of the Christian life. And very small, actually, compared to what we do on Sundays. Um, and this normally, you know, be like 30 minutes, where our time together is much longer than that, plus setup, plus lunch afterwards. So I don't know if that, that's like the short and like dirty version of what that looks like, but yeah. <laughs> um, someone else had a, no. Yeah, well, we don't have it in this uh, section here, but it does say apt to preach, which just means able. It doesn't mean that you have to be uh, like whatever, you know, celebrity preacher is out there. Um, it just means you have to be able to do it, which is a really low bar. <laughs> I'm able to teach. That's why I'm up here. <laughs> um, but I'm not a, uh, you know, a podcast preacher. So, yeah. Any other? Feel free. We, we definitely have, Yeah. I told Michael, don't worry, we've got to cut some songs because we want to...
Right. Well, if you have other questions, definitely talk to me. I am like, whether you believe something wildly different, that's totally fine. I'm totally happy for talking about that. And there's actually a range of belief in Redeemer of what this looks like, talking about how the male and female kind of leadership thing looks like. And I think that's okay. I think a lot of ways very um, can be very healthy. So, But before we end there, because if we were to end there, I think the end of the sermon would be like, well, all now what we've learned is we must be really, really good. Like, that's what we've learned. We must be really, really good. And all this, and especially talking about the process, it might be easy for us to be like, oh, we just need to like look inside of us and see how can I be a better person. But that is not the gospel. That is like anti-gospel in all possible ways. So before we come to the table together, um, we're going to look at how Christ is the ultimate healthy leader. Because Christ, he taught the truth. Christ lived the truth through his example, through how he um, empowers others to do it. And Christ also brings others to the truth. He's the, the ultimate kind of family leader. Because Christ draws us into his family, we can know the truth and hold firmly to it. We're saved from our attention deficit heart, searching after some new thing or kind of what we think is best. We're also saved from having to look at ourselves from trying to be the best leader in order to fix the problems. But because Jesus lived the truth, we can have peace in our restless hearts, in our incomplete hearts, in our unfinished hearts. And only through Jesus are we freed from the perfectionism and also given the power to live as better humans. So Jesus frees us from that perfectionism, but also through his Holy Spirit empowers us to live in the way that we just read here. How amazing would that be for us to actually like be defined as what's listed here in these verses? As we learned like last week, Christ was the ultimate greatest servant who gave himself up for everybody. And being a leader is really about being a servant. So saying servant leadership is kind of like saying ATM machine or pin number or something. It's like redundant. A leader is someone who serves someone else so they can get from where they are to where the place that they want to be. Unfortunately, our experience with leaders is not synonymous with uh, being servants because we have this busted way of leadership in our world. But as we look to Christ, how did he serve us? He gave himself up. He knew we were stuck and he wanted us to get unstuck and to experience this world as he intended, and that could not happen unless he came down to earth to save us. So Christ, the ultimate servant leader, was mocked, he was tortured, he was killed, and his body was put in a tomb. He died so that everything that we do to bring on death would be stopped. He went through hell so we would never have to go through it. So we eat this bread and we remember what it cost Jesus to bring us out of our darkness and into his light. And he didn't just die, though. In his new body, he walked out of the tomb. And so now we, together, get to drink the cup of new life. What a joyous thing to be led by a really good leader. And that's what we all have, regardless of all the ways we're going to screw it up in Redeemer. And we're not going to be perfect. We're going to be stumbling towards faith. But we are given new lives as we do so. And so when we come up and take this bread, we dip it in the wine, and we drink this new life we're given in Christ. Now, this table is open for anyone who wants to be led by Jesus, whether you're part of our family or not, and whether you've done this before or not. And uh, if you don't believe that Jesus is your leader, we ask you for not, not to uh, take this with us. We don't want you to be performing a lie that you don't actually believe in your heart. But if you follow Jesus and, you want, and he is your leader, uh, come up and take, as we remember, what it costs our leader for us. And he's not asking us to pay it back. He's not saying, oh, I went through these lengths for you. Now your whole life is to pay this back. He's happy to give it to us. And grace is, is a free gift. It doesn't require any repayment. 
And so that actually changes our lives and allows us to live in a way more in line with Jesus and less in line with ourselves. So let me pray.